Well, good morning to you. If you are at our central house service, or if you're in one of our raw church gatherings in a home somewhere in the greater Birmingham area, or for that matter, if you are tuning in from slightly further afield, it is wonderful to be with you today. Now, just so you know, what we're going to be doing in a little while is delving into some really important verses in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, which grapple with the whole subject of what happens to us when we die. Now, just by way of background, you need to know this isn't some theoretical issue for the Thessalonians. It's really important because people have died among them. They're, they're a church who are grieving and to kind of compound matters, they're a little confused about what happens to people who die before Jesus returns. They fear that they could miss out in some way and that those who are still alive will have some kind of an advantage. And so Paul's writing to clear things up. In fact, it's one of the main reasons behind this letter, pretty much a fifth of the letter is made up of teaching around what happens when we die and don't know if you've noticed but each of the five chapters ends with a reminder that Jesus is going to return. Now I don't know what you think but I suggest this is highly relevant for us today as well. You know, I think one of the things that this past year has done is face us all up to the reality of our mortality. I mean, we've had these daily reminders of death in every news report, haven't we? And it's not just numbers on a graph. Many of us, I know, have seen people that are friends, family members, colleagues, people we care about, people we love, die during this time and it's frightening even for those of us who are Christians and know that there is hope in death there is still fear it's like death is this dark door that leads to light but it's still a dark door and over the last 12 months or so we've really had to confront the fact that it is coming for all of us so I think we need a bit of clarity around what happens when we die every bit as much as the Thessalonians did. Because as long as we're just a bit fuzzy or muddled in our thinking about the future, we're going to be robbed of the very real hope that God intends for us to enjoy. The problem is, so many of the biblical descriptions of what's to come use pretty weird and wonderful metaphors and images because let's be honest it's incredibly hard talking about something that is beyond our current experience the problem is that kind of makes it all ever so slightly confusing and gives rise to all kinds of speculation which incidentally led one famous theologian, N.T. Wright, to say, really, all talk of the future is merely a signpost pointing into the fog. However, unpromising as that sounds, even through all the fog, 
I think there is still something that we can be clear on. Number one, we can be clear on the fact Jesus will come back. Right now, Jesus is with the Father, but he's not gone forever. At the end of time, he is going to come back. And then, as we're going to see in uh, the next chapter of 1 Thessalonians, secondly, there's resurrection. Every human being, both those who love Jesus and those who hate Jesus, will be resurrected. And then thirdly, there's judgment. We will all stand before the living God who made everything and answer for the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad. And as we're going to see next time, judgment is either this beautiful thing or a terrifying thing, really depending on where you stand with God. You see, in that moment, God will shut out from his world all evil. It will be destroyed forever. And then fourthly, there's recreation. Jesus himself, at the centre of God's work, will heal and renew every one of his followers and all of creation. In a nutshell, that is what we believe about the future. Jesus will come back, resurrection, judgment, recreation. All followers of Jesus, down through history, from every culture, we all believe this. Admittedly, there's plenty we don't agree on, but we can all agree on this. Now, you may beg to differ, but I'd argue that everything else is really secondary speculation. The timing of it all, when it will happen, the chronological sequence, who's in, who's out, how we interpret apocalyptic literature, what about this, what about that. It's not that it's not important, but it's secondary to what is crystal clear. Jesus will come back, resurrection, judgment, recreation. I don't know precisely how it's all going to work out, but I do believe that. And that, for me, is more than enough to keep me busy in the brief moment which is my life. Now that we're clear on that, hopefully we're clear on that, let's finally turn our attention to what Paul writes here in 1 Thessalonians 4. Let's pick it up in verse 13. And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died so you will not grieve like people who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. We tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves. Then, together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. So, encourage each other with these words. Now, the language that Paul uses here to speak of Jesus' return, it carried a whole lot of significance that 
I'm guessing we're probably not quite so in tune with. You see, the word he uses to describe the coming of the Lord was this politically charged word that was reserved for Caesar. It referred very much to a royal appearing. It described what happened when the emperor made a public appearance. But here Paul is subversively using that word to describe Jesus' royal appearing. So he's saying that Jesus is the world's true Lord, not Caesar. And the whole idea of meeting the Lord in the air is referring to the delegation that would be sent out to meet a special visitor. They would go outside the city walls and escort the special guest back into the city. And if it was the emperor himself, well, the entire city would go out and meet him with trumpets and fanfare to welcome him and then together walk him back into the city where he would take his rightful place on a throne as Lord. And really what Paul's doing here is using that as a picture or a metaphor or an illustration of what Jesus' return will be like. There is coming a day when the world's true Lord, Jesus, will come back to rule, not just over a city or a region or even an empire, but to rule over all creation. That's Incidentally, why you go out and meet him in the air, because he reigns over the whole planet. And in this wonderful metaphor that Paul uses here, those of his followers who are still alive will go up to meet him. And for those who are already dead in Christ, which, if you remember, was the key issue for the Thessalonians, well, Paul's at pains to point out they're certainly not going to miss out. It's like they will have a seat of honour at the front of the whole procession. And then together, as the people of God, we will walk Jesus back into his world, where he will take up his rightful place as king of everything, and we will reign with him forever. Now, amidst all of that, let's not miss the whole point of what Paul's doing here. Verse 18, he says, so, as a result of all of this, encourage each other with these words. Really, the entire point of this passage is to look to the future to draw hope for the present. It's for our encouragement. And so, before I finish, let me very quickly give you two simple things that I think these verses encourage us to do. Number one, we are to grieve with hope. As we've seen back then, most people in Thessalonica believed death was the end. A common inscription carved on gravestones in the city read, I was not, I am not, I care not. Fast forward to Birmingham in 2021, and I'll suggest our culture is basically the same. Most secular people nowadays think death is the end. They might have some kind of whimsical view that there is some kind of afterlife. But in reality, most people think that when they die, well, that's it. But death is not the end. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in 1963 in Birmingham, Alabama, at a funeral for a couple of girls who 
tragically died in a racist attack. He put it like this. He said, I hope you can find some consolation from Christianity's affirmation that death is not the end. Death is not a period that ends the great sentence of life, but a comma that punctuates it to more lofty significance. Death is not a blind alley that leads the human race into a state of nothingness, but an open door which leads man into life eternal. Let this daring faith, this great invincible surmise, be your sustaining power during these trying days. This is not wishful thinking. This is the real story for all who believe in Jesus. Which doesn't mean we don't grieve. Paul's point here isn't that we should be happy when people die. Don't forget, Jesus wept over the death of his friend Lazarus. And later on in the Garden of Gethsemane, immediately before his arrest, trial and crucifixion, Jesus himself swept these drops of blood in agony over his own impending death. Paul's point isn't that we shouldn't grieve. No, it's that we can grieve in a very specific way. We can grieve in hope. We can grieve in the sure and certain knowledge that those of us who die believing in Jesus will one day, when Jesus comes back, return with him. That Jesus, who has the power to make worlds out of nothing, will remake our bodies from the ground up. And so, we grieve, but we grieve in hope. And I don't think this is merely relevant for us in death. No, as we live in a broken world and encounter pain and frustration and disappointment and struggle, even on a daily basis, we can lament the fact that the world is not as it should be, but we can do so with hope. I think we're all aware, aren't we? The gap between what we were made for and what we experience right now. And I think it's right to be upset by that gap. But nonetheless, we know that when he returns, Jesus will put all things back together again. And we will finally and forever live in a recreated world as it should be. That is our hope. So encourage each other with these words. So first we grieve with hope. Second, we're to live with purpose. What we believe about the future really should, really must shape how we live in the present. It should prompt, it should push, it should motivate us to join Jesus in his kingdom work. As we've seen, it really is a distortion to see the future just as an escape from this earth. And what the Bible teaches is that one day Jesus will return to the earth and he will renew and heal and restore everything. 
Jesus, he died and rose again. And one day that will happen to you and to me and every square inch of the universe. And so what this passage does is pull us away from escapism and pushes us towards engagement. Now, let's be honest, escapism comes in many shapes and forms, doesn't it? We perhaps escape into a bottle or a pill or a prescription or a Netflix series or the arms of a lover or an ever-increasing number of hours at our job or online shopping. It's like we're running away all the time from the issues in our lives, from anything hard and difficult and painful, even from responsibility at times. We'll kind of do anything to avoid facing up to reality. But here's the thing, having a sure and certain hope for the future helps us to engage, not escape. It equips us to press into the problems and the issues and the mess and the pain that we might otherwise have avoided because we know that death isn't the end. And if death isn't the end, well, that changes everything. It changes not only how we die, but how we live in the here and now. It means we don't run away from relational struggles or emotional pain or the challenges in our community or the reality of death. No, we are willing to do the hard work. We lean into the disappointment of life. We press in and as we do so, we find God there. We find life and we find hope in Jesus. It's as though we experience something of the life to come invading the present. And so, in closing, really my appeal to you would be, may you not escape this week, but may you instead choose to engage your life, with all its pain and all its beauty, would you engage the hard places in your life that you might otherwise be tempted to avoid? Won't you press into it, meet Jesus there, grieve with hope and live with purpose? And may Paul's words echo in your mind all week long. So encourage one another with these words.